calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Nightmare Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Kincaid. Nightmare Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams and Wendy Wagner. The stories of this podcast are produced by Skyboat Media, helmed by Stefan Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure, in association with Jim Freund. Our first offering for the May issue is The Old Horror Writer by Adam Troy Castro. The story is read for you by Stefan Rudnicki. The Old Horror Writer is copyright 2016 by Adam Troy Castro. Adam Troy Castro's middle grade series about that exceedingly strange young boy Gustav Gloom wraps up this year. With an extra long conclusion set for publication in August, in the meantime, he has a new multi-volume project already placed and set to go. Adam Short Fiction has been nominated for eight Nebulas, three Stokers, and two Hugos. His seven scheduled short works for 2016 can be found here in Nightmare, and also in Lightspeed and Analog. Adam lives in Boynton Beach, Florida, with his wife Judy and a rotating collection of archivist cats. And so ends this week's intro. So without further ado, let's have a nightmare. The Old Horror Writer by Adam Troy Castro He's harder to find than most. I have the basis for comparison because I've gotten to all of them sooner or later from the big names to the obscurities. There are some who give up so thoroughly and disappear so completely that it's as if they never existed at all. This guy's far from the worst. He's an old man now, twenty years removed from his last novel and ten from his last short story. He's no longer a member of HWA or SFWA, 
and the agency that used to handle his interests now has him in their estate file, sending out occasional contracts and two-digit checks whenever some foreign-language magazine situated in one of the new countries deigns to ask permission for, let alone compensate, a reprint. Out of curiosity, I made myself a voice on the phone and had to stay on the line with them for ten minutes before the receptionist was able to connect me with a member of the agency who knew who he was. The address they had was a post office box, and they hadn't mailed anything there for three years. I linger in the post office lobby for a few days, waiting to see if he ever shows up. But he never does. I suspect he's paid for years in advance and forgotten that the address even exists. Fortunately, I have other methods, and I soon appear in front of his home, which is not so much a home as the place where he wound up. It's a decaying little house in a decaying little neighborhood, a place of boarded-up windows and rusting automobiles, with a front walk stained by brown patches left by years of fallen leaves that were allowed to rot wherever they landed. The sky is gray, the air oppressive, and the way it's pretty much been everywhere the last couple of decades— before I get to the door, I hear the TV playing something with a theremin score and wonder whether it's Forbidden Planet or one of its many imitators, before I knock and hear the old man grunt as he gets up from his chair. It takes him a long time to get to the door. He is a pale and bloodless thing, an old man of the sort who used to be fat but lost most of that as age and infirmity sucked away his substance. He is bald, even on the sides, the skin over his ears tending to gray in the places where blood vessels near the surface have not rendered it pale blue. His teeth are yellow, his lower lip a permanent and now drooping pout, but his eyes are a rich brown that suggests depth. Hello? I know the answer before I ask the question, but some formalities need to be respected. He confirms that he is indeed the old horror writer though he's astonished that anybody remembers work that is now yellowing in magazines and anthologies that went out of print long ago. When I tell him that it's his work that brings me here, he hesitates, casts a wistful glance over his shoulder at the music of weird doings on alien worlds, and lets me in. The old horror writer is not a talented housekeeper. The floor has been swept just often enough to keep the place minimally presentable, but not enough to render it more than dingy. Books, pulled from one shelf or another, and then put down whenever it occurred to him that he was done, sit on every flat surface. The house doesn't stink of cat the way some I've visited have, but a wisp of shed hair dances in his slipstream as he stops at the large but quaint TV, turns it off, and leads me further into the room beyond, which appears to be the most writerly of his three rooms. It is the room where the bookcases are all monuments to himself. His novels, several copies of each, his short story collections, many more copies of each, and in one high place a highly sought-after and well-respected trophy that would be shiny if he bothered to dust it. There is no desk, just a soft easy chair, and across from it a much-patched leather desk chair on casters. He gestures towards the desk chair, which I take, and asks if I would like something to drink. Water, perhaps. I say yes to water. He comes back with a tall plastic cup and ice. I note that it doesn't look like he writes here. Yellow teeth flash. I don't. 
I ask if he's still producing. I tinker once in a while. I haven't finished anything in a little bit, but I tinker. There's an epic novel that tortured me for almost a decade in the 90s that I finally gave up on to save my sanity, that I still add a page to once in a while. At this rate, I'll be finished with it when I'm 250 years old. I suspect I'll be dead before I even finish another chapter. Is he blocked? I've always been blocked. I was blocked when I started. That's the nature of the game. There were always stories I started but couldn't finish. Novels I got 80% done, but then wandered away from. Like faithful wives I left in the lurch to pursue another that wagged her finger at me from the other end of the bar. If I could go back and finish all my fragments, without adding a single new idea to the pile, I'd be a wealthy man. If there were any place that would pay me for them. There are still magazines, I see. Websites. Yes. Too many pay with love or an insulting pittance not much better than love. Every once in a while I hear from one that still believes I'll have an orgasm over a penny a word. Did you know that was considered the low end of the pay scale a century ago now? It was a scandal twenty years later, an insult twenty years after that, robbery when I sold my first couple of stories. Now, with Pecans going for a dollar apiece and oranges, something only the wealthy can afford. It's a quarter dropped in a beggar's tin cup. Uh, once I loved the art so much, I was willing to take it. Then it became impossible to sell a story for even those poverty wages without somebody somewhere giving it away for free online. Now I'm at the end of my life, and I find my dignities worth more. But the stories, I say... I name a few of his that made a splash, a small splash in the day. We talk a little about the one that inverted the vampire trope, where the predator was actually a volume of sentient blood that invaded and possessed one victim's body after another. The one about the passenger plane that crashes in the afterlife. The paradise that erupts in horrific bloodshed every seven days. The siblings forced into gladiatorial combat the professional torturer tasked by his king to find and render real that much-discussed and never-defined abstraction, the fate worse than death. I speak of the most memorable deaths in his work, like the woman turned inside out or the art collector sucked into one of his more severe landscapes. His tired eyes come to life whenever he discusses these masterworks and others, but after a while he seems to realize what he's doing and rejects it, the problem is that all of that was just comforting nonsense. It mocked the genuine horror we live with by turning that emotion into a parlor game, making it an exercise in producing a frisson rather than diagnosing the true evils that are out there. We wrote about zombies overrunning the earth when the sad truth was that we were creating a terrible future of rising shorelines and endless drought and Turf wars fought over glacial runoff. After my wife died, I had to move out of Florida. I became a climate refugee for two years. Once I was at a food bank and saw a cop beat some poor kid's brains out for asking what line he was supposed to stand in. I'm not saying that I stopped writing about zombies and vampires that day, but it sure as hell seemed a lot stupider after that. 
He's mentioned his wife, so I ask him about her. His eyes go distant. Uh, do I have to talk about her? I ask him if he please would. She was the best part of me, and the worst. How, I ask, was she the worst? Between the two of us, somebody had to do the hard work of living. I was no damned good at it, so it fell to her. I was the dreamer. She was the doer. She went out and came back and had to listen to me saying I'd done another chapter, written another story. And every once in a while, a three-figure check would come in and she'd make me feel like a hero for a day or so. She was gone for a bunch of years before I accepted what I knew only vaguely when she was around. That to her, for all the love she showed me, I was like a pet dog, praised all out of proportion for performing the only trick he knew. You don't love that dog less because there's another you could have gotten that knows every trick in the catalog. You love it just as much, but make that one trick seem like it's worth more. I discovered how much effort that must have been after she was gone and the praise stopped. I spend much of my time these days dwelling on just how much it must have cost her. What would you tell her, I ask, if she could be returned to you for five minutes? That I never deserved her? That she shed light on a soul that had precious little of it? That I wish I had been a better horse for her to back? That I'm sorry I betrayed her by not being as remarkable a man as she should have had? That there was more wonder in one of her smiles than in any fantasy I ever produced? I quote things critics said about his work, list the foreign languages it was translated into, catalog the award nominations. I name the celebrated figures, some titanic, who attributed to him a number of synonyms for genius. He listens and gives me a sad smile. I used to cling to those. A writer's ego can be a fragile one. There are photos around the room of him at one party or another with famous figures of his era. Two or three are notorious for having had their fictions turned into movies or TV series, manna from heaven that the old horror writer has never had the good fortune to enjoy for his work. A couple of others in the photographs wrote terrific books whose influence is visible in the old horror writer's prose. I direct the conversation toward these mementos, and he brightens a little, telling me about the aphorisms spoken by one, the character-defining moments lived by another. A few icons he won't talk about. The ones he says ended badly, or ended their friendship with him badly. He falls silent a little after that. The old house settles and we listen to the sound it makes, like scared mice afraid it might fall in on them. Cat eyes appear in a narrow crevice between stacks of yellowing books, blink at me, and disappear. The old horror writer was known for his cats once upon a time. He used to include them as family members in the bio-blurbs at the back of his books. I ask him why he's no longer writing. He sighs. Look, I don't know if I can explain it any better than this. There was a news story yesterday. Worldwide, zoos have agreed to stop breeding their tigers. They're the only place where there are any tigers anymore. But their stock is becoming so inbred that they judged it cruel to continue to continue to try to save the species. Uh, they long ago stopped replacing their elephants because they realized that elephants went half-psychotic in zoos. Uh, 
Soon they'll be gone, the way the killer whales are gone, the way the bluefin tuna are gone, the way that wild tigers are gone. There are a couple of countries in Africa and Asia killing men and putting their wives and daughters into rape camps, a dozen major cities being abandoned all over the world because they're no longer livable. There's a new disease caused by heavy metals in the environment affecting some of our more polluted countries, the occasional baby being born without brains. I could go on forever. The horror is out there without me writing it. And the sick thing about me after a lifetime of making things up is that I experience it not just as an appalled human being, though I am, but as a lover of the imagination, watching our possibilities contract to zero even as we continue to deny that it's happening. This is the damage a lifetime of nurturing that kind of imagination has done to me. I'm not so much disappointed that this world's turned to shit as by the awareness that we won't get to have adventures on another one. I'm not so much terrified that we've turned the Amazon into a parking lot as by the suspicion that we've seen our last epic quest into unmapped places. I'm not so driven to despair by the evidence of so many human monsters multiplying around us even as we breathe, but by the knowledge that we've cataloged everything that lives and that we know that there are no monsters of the sort that thrilled me as a child. In short, what I hate myself for but have to acknowledge is that I'm not as bothered by the sad wreck we've made of this existence as I am by the destruction we've done to the world of make-believe. I've had to realize that horror fiction, bloody and disturbing as it often was, was not a way to engage with the awful, as to escape it. For me, a junkie breaking in and cutting my throat for whatever small amount of cash I've got lying around is just the sordid box known as real life. But a mysterious and shadowy thing, half nightmare and half man, drifting across a darkened bedroom in the middle of the night with claw-like fingertips that become more like scythe blades the closer he approaches, that's comforting. It's reassurance that there's more around us than we can see, and that even if some of it is frightening, then at least it's proof there's more to the universe than what we see. He shrugs. I spend my life making up those stories, stories that ended, that left the readers licking their lips and saying to themselves, well, that was a good one, before they turned the page and moved on. And that, from the ridiculous perspective of 95, turns out to have been a damned wasteful way to have spent my limited time on a dying planet. The words dissipate in the dusty air before he registers that he's spoken them. He bites his lower lip, seems to register me as the stranger I am, and betrays a rush of shame that diminishes him in the few ways that age has not. I'm sorry. I'm an old man. It's all right. I can't just blame being an old man. I've always talked too much. At conventions, I was notorious for it. I'm not upset. It's just that I know you came a long way. I say, how do you know that? He opens his mouth, closes it. 
tilts his head as the internal calculations play back as much of our conversation as he can remember. I see him register that he never actually asked me who I was or what I wanted, let alone where I came from. It always comes as a surprise. It is part of my glamour. Whenever I am about, people sense the distance I have walked and couple that to their own expectations. This man, who has answered so many interview questions for so many fanzines, so many websites, so many author Q&A sessions, and so many sparsely attended bookstore autograph sessions, blinks as the illusion wavers and he catches the slightest glimpse of what I am and why I've come. He says, What are you? I flash fingers, grown long and barbed and festooned with hooks, and tell him that I'm whatever he wants me to be. I don't want you to be anything, he says. I want you out of my house. I could sever his head from his shoulders with a twitch, but I want understanding between us, and so I speak to him in a thousand voices. I tell him with all due deference that this visit is a gesture of love. I explain that it's as he's said. So many of the deaths available to him all jostling at the threshold known as blind chance for the opportunity to take him out at the end of his days are too sad and mundane for one who has imagined such otherworldly sights and visions. In the next year, I explain, one of several things must and will happen to him. He might succumb peacefully in his sleep, but go undiscovered for weeks until his body has bloated and burst and sprouted life of its own. He might fall from a stroke and find his limbs uncooperative as the telephone capable of summoning help sits untouched in plain sight. He might sense a certain pain linger in his belly until it metastasizes to his bone marrow and his brain leaving him delirious in agony with no company but the hospice nurses who will see him as nothing more than just another anonymous old man. Or he might suffer a day and a half of brutal torment at the hands of neighborhood morons who have talked themselves into the belief that he's a miser hoarding an immense fortune and be left bleeding out as they flee upon deciding that he never had anything to offer them. All of these things already want to happen. They are merely racing toward him at approximately equal speeds. The winner, a decision to be made by nothing more than random fate. The splendid death I offer. The shapes I can assume. The sight of something alien and otherworldly that I can offer him just because my claws slash is just as horrid in its own way but it will also validate his lifetime of work, providing the epilogue to the single-author collection he's always been. More, I say, the carnage I leave will render his death notorious, in the same way the sordid murders of one Wisconsin half-wit captured the collective imagination of so many fright merchants and made Psycho, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and the Silence of the Lambs possible. His will become a perennial mystery echoing down through just as many generations. Books will be written about what happened to him. Movies will be made about what happened to him. His story will be altered and amplified and told over campfires for decades.
And then there's this, I say. By now I have swelled to encompass the entire room, my scaly wings scraping the ceiling, my fiery breath making his many shelves of contributor copies smolder from heat that is more than normal combustion. I have assumed a form that would drive most men mad, and done so knowing that he will not go mad, not in any way that he has not always been. Where others would shriek, he merely winces, taking me in, nodding as if his darkest muses have been confirmed. It is one of many reasons why I and all who come from the realm I call home have always looked upon him and his ilk with such shining love. Why we have visited so many in their final years and made offers like this to so many of them. I tell him that his own work will come back into print worldwide, and he will at last achieve the true lasting fame that has always been denied him, that it will stay in print for as long as frightening stories are told, that it will be studied and admired and copied, and above all, read forevermore. All he has to do, I say, is accept this fate instead of the mundane ones that await following months that have no compensating joys to offer him. The choice is his. He sits in his chair and blinks at me for so long that I fear he's gone simple from fear. But then the corners of his lips twitch, and he massages his chin between thumb and forefinger, unable to hide a certain anger even in the presence of a creature capable of disemboweling him in an eye-blink. He says... Then you'll own it. Yes. You'll make it a source of power. Yes. But think of what you'll have. The cat I spotted before leaves its place of concealment and races across the room to his side, claiming his ankles, purring its bliss even as it ignores me completely. He snaps his fingers, and it hops up onto his lap, where it curls up an ancient animal content in the lap of its ancient master. He pets it absently and gazes on me with undisguised pity. He says, Do you know what happens to all scary monsters eventually when they don't possess control over their own stories? It is the one question I've hoped he wouldn't ask because it means that he knows the answer. They become jokes, Women fainted at the sight of Boris Karlov as the Frankenstein monster. Two decades later, the character was a foil for Lou Costello. Dracula was once considered so ghastly that some parties thought the Bram Stoker novel unfit for civilized consumption. A century later, a puppet dressed like him taught basic counting skills to preschoolers. I remember when a sparkly version of him romanced a wan teenage girl named after the Hungarian actor most famous for playing that most legendary predator on screen. Once upon a time, they made people scream. In short order, they all became themes for sugary breakfast cereals. The more popular the imagined nightmare, the sooner all the attention reduces it to impotent shtick. And if I can take anything from your visit, it's the awareness that perhaps this means my life's work had purpose after all. 
It seems that I've done my small part to cast a light that keeps you and all your kind away from us. I say, you'll die forgotten, your stories forgotten. Maybe, he says. And maybe that means I'm irrelevant, that I've sucked as much fright out of what I've written as I'll ever be able to. Uh, that means you're irrelevant, and I want you the hell out of my house. In the quiet that follows, I find that I once again possess the shape and dimension of an ordinary human being, one more shadowy and mysterious than the average, but by no means the sanity-disturbing image I was a few short seconds ago. It should be more than enough than I would need to throttle the old fool where he sits, but it would take effort. And even as I consider it, I find that my human arms have become leaden, my human sinews too deprived of will to do much more than lift them. Their substance has turned smoky, transparent, too insubstantial to cast a shadow. Perhaps I can still kill him, but almost certainly not in any manner that anyone will ever consider legendary. Not in any way that will give me and my kind strength, it would be pointless. He continues to watch me as I rise, mumble inadequate thanks for his time and drift from the room, fading so quickly that by the time I leave, aware that he is even now conceiving a brand new story in the dusty spaces behind me, I don't need to open the front door in order to pass over his threshold. I head up the walk to the street and am passed by figures who are just as transparent, but growing more substantial as they head toward his front door. A beautiful young woman, a dark-eyed and purposeful man, a figure belonging to neither gender who is nevertheless made of the same stuff. They nod at me as they pass, cursing me with the knowledge that there will now be more stories, more wounds to worsen the hemorrhage of our power. Some day I will appear before one who accepts the offer. It just hasn't happened yet. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the story. Please consider making a stop at our website at nightmare-magazine.com. If you'd like to help spread the word about the Nightmare Magazine podcast, find us on iTunes and leave a review or rating there. Nightmare Magazine is published by John Joseph Adams. If you haven't already subscribed, check out our many options at nightmare-magazine.com slash subscribe. The stories of this podcast are produced by Skyboat Media, the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast. They are headed by the Audi and Grammy award-winning narrators Stefan Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. You can check out Skyboat Media's website at skyboatmedia.com. Post-production is in association with Jim Freund. Music and sound logos are composed and performed by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. There's other ways you can be notified of new Nightmare Magazine content. You can subscribe to our free monthly newsletter or RSS feed, follow us on Twitter, or like our fan page on Facebook. If you visit nightmare-magazine.com and click on this month's editorial, you'll find links to all of our social media pages. This podcast is copyright 2016 by Nightmare Magazine. Thanks for joining us. Sleep tight. Nightmare.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.